0: How on earth would you model a complex system? For example, how would you model the spread of COVID through our logs? Well, in traditional systems, we usually observe how the system is behaving, then write down the equations to describe this behavior. But this doesn't work in complex systems. And the reason it doesn't work is because interactions between agents in a system can have a significant impact on the overall behavior of the system. So to model complex systems, we first define how the agents in the system will interact. Then we run the model and examine its resulting behavior. In a way, it's like the opposite of traditional modeling, and we call these agent-based models. And it's useful to think of them as computational experiments as opposed to models. We're building a system and we're observing what will happen in that system just the way an ecologist would observe an ecology. Today, you're going to hear from Melanie Moses, Professor in Computer Science at the University of New Mexico and external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute. Melanie's going to tell us how she used agent-based models to better understand the spread of COVID in the lungs. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Melanie, welcome on the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So we're going to talk about computational biology today and how we can use that to understand complex systems. But we're going to start with the problem that you applied this to, which is COVID problem. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Like many scientists back in the early spring of 2020, we saw this emerging pathogen and wondered what we could do to help understand what it's doing, how it's spreading. And so we built a model called Simcove, which is a spatial immune model of coronavirus. And our goal was to model not directly the epidemic spread between people, where obviously lots of important work had been going on, but to model how the virus spreads within a host, within the body, particularly within the lungs. So we built a spatial model that actually incorporates the dynamics of how the virus replicates, what it infects and how quickly it can spread under different scenarios through the tissues of a lung.
0: And you're particularly interested in couple of things. One was unclear why some people get sicker than others from the virus. But the key bit you're interested in is why do we have superspreaders? Why do some people seem to spread this virus far worse than others?
1: So I think that still remains a bit of a mystery. We still have people who are super spreaders. We're all now quite familiar with testing ourselves and swabbing our noses. And from that, we have lots and lots of data about how much virus is in different people's noses at different times. What we were interested in is understanding what are the factors that cause a really high count of virus, what's called a viral load. How long does that last? Is it really different for different people? Is it something about the person or something about the virus or something about the environment? What causes a super spreading event to happen? particularly focused on the piece of it, what is causing large viral loads in some people at some times.
0: And when you say large viral loads, that means mean the amount of virus you're shedding at a particular time. And some people kind of COVID and shed quite a lot of virus, whereas others don't.
1: Well, it's not completely clear. It seems that some people have a shed more virus than others, but everyone sheds different amounts of virus over time. So one of the things we look at is the, the sort of trajectory through time. When you first get infected, you're not shedding any virus. There's a few days where you won't even test positive, right, on any, even a sensitive test. And then if you get one of these PCR tests, it gives the scientists sort of an estimate of the quantitative, how many viral particles are there, say, in a milliliter of fluid. That starts off fairly low, and it can go up into the millions, tens of millions of viral particles as a concentration. And then it pretty quickly comes back down again. So there's this brief period of time where in most infections, it's quite high. And it may be several orders of magnitude higher in some people than others, billions rather than millions. So what we're trying to model and understand is what causes that peak in large amounts of virus that are contained within your lung or within your nose? How long does it last? And why is that perhaps different? What would be causes for it to be different in different people?
0: You did this using computational biology and you actually built a model of the lung. But before we get to the model of the lung, what's the more traditional non-complexity based approach to modeling the amount of virus in a person?
1: I think it probably still falls under kind of a complex systems question. The typical approach uses the same sorts of models that people use to model epidemic spread. So it's sets of differential equations that basically say, how does the amount of virus change over time? Instead of, saying in an epidemic model, you'd say, how many people are there available to get infected? And you play out the dynamics of spread of the virus to people, maybe interventions that would reduce the probability of spread to people. Traditionally, within host modeling, modeling how the virus spreads within a particular person, you just apply those equations and you substitute in cells for people. You're looking at how does the virus spread among cells. And often you want to also consider sort of the intervention, which is your immune system. How does your immune system stop or slow that spread? So our approach is similar, except that we model this being explicit about how these virus particles and immune cells are actually moving
0: through space. So what is computational biology? Give us an overview of that before we get to how you model this in detail.
1: I'll give you my flavor of computational biology, which is maybe not everyone's. I'm very interested in using agent-based models. So models where you're explicitly representing sort of the biological things of interest. You care about cells and viruses, and they are actual objects in space. And we can see them. We can make a movie that simulates how things move between them. So that's the sort of flavor of computational biology that I like to use, both because it gives you a mechanistic understanding of how say cells in a body might interact with each other. And it also, for people who aren't experts in this field, provides a visual that gives a sort of intuitive understanding about what's going on that I think you can't quite get from a mathematical model.
0: So if we were to contrast the two of those, so if we were looking at a more traditional way, one way would be to look at rates of change, for example, inside the lung. We're actually talking about here in these agent-based models, which I'm sure some of our listeners would have heard of before, is that you're Modeling individual agents and you're modeling how those agents interact with one another and setting some rules for them. And then you're putting them in the space of the lung itself with the constraints of that and seeing how it behaves. How different is this from traffic models we see of big cities when people are trying to model congestion?
1: It's the same sort of idea. It's, in fact, quite close, probably closer to that scenario than the mathematical models. So you can imagine, if you've seen a traffic simulation, we're essentially modeling the same idea, but instead of cars moving through roadways, we're modeling virus moving through airways. Our approach here brings a couple of things, a couple of new perspectives on how the virus spreads, and I'll talk through that for a second. So first, we're building a spatially explicit model. So that means we're putting everything in the location you would expect it in a lung. For the lung model, in our recent work, we've built a, what we're calling our fractal branching lung airway model. And so this is inspired by that idea that we can actually build a very good model of the lung by simply, you know, you build trachea, right? The first pipe that goes down and it branches and you get two more pipes and those branch and you get two more. And your lung has about 23 generations of this branching that leads to millions of tiny airway sacs at the end, the alveolar spaces. And in fact, each of them has the order of hundreds of these little sort of looks like grape sacks. So this whole branching surface ends up having about half a trillion cells. And what we do is explicitly build this relationship between the cells. And it turns out that the cells that are most likely to get infected with a COVID, SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID, are lining the airways. So there's some possibility of things in the upper tracks, right? The big pipes and lots of possibility of infection in the alveolar space where the air exchange happens. So these are these little sort of grapes kind of at the end of each one of these 23 generations of branching.
0: Talking about a massive surface area here. So when we branch all this down, what is the surface area of a typical human lung?
1: Yeah. So if you were to take this complex surface and lay it out flat, it's about the size of half a tennis court. So we're all walking around with the surface area of half a tennis court packed into our lungs. So crazy to imagine it's there. And also it's a huge target for a viral infection. So if a virus is capable of infecting those cells, that's a lot of cells that it can infect. And that's why we
0: model the lung. It's where the space is. (laughs) And you're specifically saying, right, well, we've got this half tennis court size, but you're putting it into the structure that we have inside our lung and you're defining that. And I suppose you'd say you're defining a network inside your lung for all this surface. So that's sort of the physical space and what you mean by a spatial model. What are the agents? Where does the virus come from? Where does the T cells come from? How do you model all that piece of it?
1: Great. The main agents that we model are the cells that are lining the airway, for example. Those are the cells that can get infected. And those cells have a state. They can be infected. They can be healthy. They can be incubating a virus. So they haven't yet sent virus anywhere else. Or they can be expressing virus, which is where the virus replicates inside those cells. And then the virus essentially sort of bursts out of those cells and then diffuses and can infect other cells. And that causes, there's some probability of infection every time a virus touches a cell in the model. And if that probability is met, then that cell becomes infected and, and it goes through the same cycle. So you're sort of simultaneously allowing this spread to happen over this large space with these dynamics playing out. At the same time, the virus could move instead of directly into another cell, it could move into the airway. And there it has different dynamics, right? It can move much faster in the air than it can between cells. And so we model the virus, not as specific agents. We sort of model clouds of virus. There's so much virus, you wouldn't want to model each individual one. We model a field of virus, and that field has a concentration, which leads to a probability of a virus that is capable of infecting a cell. And then the last sort of important part of our model is an immune response. So an important thing to say about the immune system at all times is the immune system is very complex. There are no complete models of immune response to anything because the immune system is made of so many different cell types, communicating in so many different kinds of ways. If you're interested in what the most complex of complex systems, I nominate the immune system right to be that. So we just focus on T cells. So this is the arm of the immune system that can kill a cell that's infected sort of doing the opposite job of antibodies. We all kind of probably think about antibodies now, right? We get our vaccines, we have some level of antibodies, and those antibodies neutralize the virus that's floating around between cells, but they can't get in cells. And so T-cells actively move through tissue and can kill cells that are infected.
0: So they're killing the host cells to destroy the virus's ability to replicate.
1: Right. And so the T-cells are interesting for a number of reasons. One, it's thought that they are the reason why if you're previously infected or vaccinated, your chances of suffering a severe disease are much lower, even if your antibodies have waned. They're sort of the next line of defense that are a bit more robust to the virus mutation. So they're really important immunologically. They're sort of our line of defense we think is protecting people from severe disease. They're also causing damage. So as you said, right, they're killing your cells. So T-cells are quite highly regulated by your immune system, but once they get into your tissues and they're they're sort of armed and dangerous, they will start to kill cells. They will sometimes kill sort of bystander cells. There's lots of inflammation around. They might kill uninfected cells accidentally. It's not fully known. This is one of the questions we're working on now is how much of the damage that you see in lung tissue is direct damage by the virus and how much of it is damaged by the T-cells. Potentially other immune cells, but likely T cells are doing some damage that actually shows up on X-rays and C T scans where you can see visible lung damage. Some of that's done by the virus and some of it's done by the immune system itself.
0: So how do you model these T cells?
1: I kind of love the way we model the T cells. So the T cells, they're activated in your lymph nodes. You get sick, you get your vaccine, your lymph nodes swell up. They're basically filling up with many things, but including T cells. And once you have a sort of a large enough army of those T cells, they move into the bloodstream. And then where you have a sign of infection, you get inflammation and the T cells exit the bloodstream at those locations. So in our model, we sort of implicitly model all of that. But these show up as agents when they get to the lung and they ask the question, I've arrived at a random location in the lung. Is there any inflammation here? Should I get off here? Because this is where the fight is. And in the agent-based model, if that's the case, if there's inflammation that's produced by the infected cells and the T cells leave and then they look very nearby, there will be an infected cell and they start killing infected cells. We model them. They move on their own. They're not floating. They actually sort of grab hold of tissues and crawl along the surface of the lung that we talked about.
0: So they're not moving in the airways the same as the virus can. They're moving from cell to cell roughly in your model.
1: Primarily, they're moving cell to cell. It's actually a bit of a a question whether they can move into the airways, move in and out. Like we're modeling them as crawling along the cell surface.
0: So you've got a model that has agents that are your healthy cells. You've got T cells running around the healthy cells looking for virus. You've got virus moving around as a cloud, essentially. And you've got all that happening within a spatially correct model, so to speak, so that the lung model is forcing a structure and a network on how all of that talks and interacts with each other. And I presume like all agent based models, you start this and you make a number of random assumptions or assumptions, and then you run it out over time to see how the virus moves around, what the T cells do, how many cells they kill. And then you repeat these models over and over again with slightly different assumptions to sort of get a takeaway or or a finding.
1: That's correct. We have a paper that's published on this where we actually did a simplified version of this. We didn't have the lung structure. We just said, uh, we'll just pretend we actually have taken a lung and spread it out like a tennis court. And then we can check to see, we can go over a range of variable values, every sort of parameter in the models, 15 of them, but only a few of them that really matter. And our question was, which ones matter and how much? And so what we're able to do, right, because this is a computational model, we run, um, this was designed by a colleague, Steve Hoffmeyer at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. So his expertise is in building high-performance computing systems. So it runs quickly. We run it on these massive machines that we have at our university and and the national labs so that we can run it over and over and over again, right? We've got lots and lots of millions and potentially billions of cells that we simulate all the time, and we can replicate and change. One of the questions we asked, what if the T cells, they typically arrive around day seven after an infection, if you've not been infected before. Well, but what if they arrive later? What if they arrive at day 12? How much difference does that make? Well, it turns out it makes a huge difference because the virus is growing exponentially. So a few days of delay in your T cells arriving means that you actually are able to produce a lot more virus, right? The virus has grown to a much higher level. Potentially, this would be maybe one of the explanations why some people have a really high viral load is they have a late T-cell response. Might also be a reason why particularly elderly people have a much more severe disease course because that late response means that the virus has gotten much more out of control. It means that you then have to bring in the more T-cells and more other arms of the immune system that are actually having to do more damage in order to control the virus. So we're able to vary all of those sorts of things. Now we're looking at, well, what if you're vaccinated? That means you've got an already built up sort of small army of T cells, but they're able to replicate faster and get to the virus in maybe something closer to three days rather than a typical seven days. And so how does that affect the full time course of the disease, but also how does it affect that peak viral load? The primary finding I think that is most interesting, so this is sort of already known, biologists who study T cells already know this, we've sort of baked this into the model in some sense, like we asked the question because it was already known to be worth asking. The piece that we've done that's, I think, somewhat new and brings a really new perspective is we ask, how much does it matter how many virus particles you breathe in and where they're located? And what our finding was is you could breathe in lots of virus, but if you breathe it all into the same place, say the same grape sack, the bunch of grapes where you have the air exchange in one tiny little cubic millimeter of your lung, it doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little, because the virus is going to replicate exponentially. If you don't have a lot on day zero, you're going to have a lot by day one. It doesn't matter if you've got a lot in one spot. What does matter in our model, I think this translates into the real world, it matters how many spots are infected. So if you have a hundred different of these grape sacks, then they're all infected. They all get to spread sort of, you can imagine it like a fire in a field, right? Each one of them is spreading independently. So if you have a hundred times more locations that are infected, you could potentially have a hundred times higher viral load.
0: You were able to get that from the fact that you modeled the space. And this is the value of the spatial model as you're essentially taking space as a variable and saying, what effect does space have? Exactly.
1: And again, space is particularly interesting in the lung because there's so much of it. So if you took the same approach and you just wanted to model the virus spreading in your upper airways, I think that space wouldn't matter so much because your upper airways is going to get immediately affected in the first day or two of infection anyway, right? The virus doesn't have very far to go. It's going to infect sort of all of the infectable cells pretty quickly and you'll run out of infectable cells and that will sort of cause the peak of the viral load in your nose. But our hypothesis is that's not true in the lung because you have so much space that the spreading virus actually doesn't fill the whole lung with virus. And so how many of those patches there are in our work says how much virus you're actually then able to produce in the lung and potentially spread to others.
0: That's fascinating because the more traditional models, because you're not modeling space, they're just really looking at how much you've got going on as one number rather than as an area covered and the concentration in that area and how many areas, they're just saying, I want one number. And that's what they're missing.
1: Yeah, and so we build very much on that work. And what we sort of bring to it is the ability to differentiate, is all the virus in one place or is the virus distributed to multiple places? And so this is that unique perspective. It raises the question, so why would the virus be spread in multiple places? Certainly, there are cases where we see that there are lots of different spots in the lung that are infected. And our hypothesis at the moment is influenced a lot by aerosol scientists who have studied the way that the virus moves through the air spaces of the lung. So if virus is in, say, a droplet, like someone, you know, we've sort of seen these pictures, right? Someone coughs on you and you get sort of this big droplet <laughs> that you breathe in. No one, an ugly droplet. No one wants to think about that. But if that drop, one, that big droplet is unlikely to get deep into the lung because it's large, it's going to hit a surface and probably stay in the upper airway. But if a large concentrated droplet like that did go deep in the lung, it would go to one place. But the alternative hypothesis, which I think has been ignored sort of still maybe too much in this pandemic, is that the virus is aerosolized. So it's more like cigarette smoke in a room, right? It's in tiny little particles. And when you breathe those in through this fractal branching airway, if you take one breath in, that breath goes through the first tube and then it divides into the next two and divides into the next two. So you could get a small amount of virus in a wide dispersion throughout the lung and What our model does says, well, if that were to happen, right, then you would actually expect to build up a much larger viral load because each of those independent little tiny aerosols is sort of growing its own fire. It's kind of exponentially getting out of control. So it's another reason to worry about aerosol transmission.
0: One of the things I love about complexity science is the, the scalability of it, how you can take the lessons from one system and scale it up and put it in and move it to other systems and see the similarities between those two systems. And you've got a whole fascinating similarity between what's happening in the lung in terms of COVID and what's potentially happening in the world Because COVID.
1: Yeah. So the spatial dynamics that we're modeling, just like the differential equation models apply within a host and they apply between individuals. These spatial sort of effects happen within the cells of an animal, but also between, say, people moving through a city. There's certainly existing lots of great, important work in epidemic modeling that considers that you're not going to pick a random person on planet Earth and infect them. You're going to infect a person nearby. But I think when we take the kind of principles that we understand from modeling in the lung, we can sort of think about the airways are sort of like, well, our human airways, right? But the airplanes, right, that take a human from a place like Wuhan to a place like Northern Italy. This long-distance transmission that allows you to carry a virus from one place to another really changes the dynamics of the pandemic, just like if you can move virus through the branching airway of the lung, you're much worse off because you can spread the virus quite quickly when it's not just sort of cell to cell.
0: And because we've changed those pathways of travel, those, we've essentially changed the network by which the virus can move around the world, certainly dramatically from the pandemic in 1918, you fundamentally change the impact that virus has on the human race and human society.
1: I think it's really important when we ask, how is this pandemic different than the pandemic in 1918? We tend to focus on how's the virus different? We know that right? these coronaviruses are different than flu viruses. But I think we fail to really take into account the ways in which the society that this is playing out in is also enormously different. So I think of disease as an emergent property. A disease isn't caused just by a virus It's caused by the properties of the virus, the properties of the host, and the properties of the environment in which they coexist. Lots of coronaviruses don't make bats sick. It matters, is the bat a human or is it another animal? It makes elderly people more likely to be sick than young people. So the properties of the host are really important for determining the disease course. And there are a number of properties we either don't understand or are really just sort of up to chance, right? Why some people get really sick and others don't. And so thinking about a disease as not just caused by a virus, but caused by the way the virus interacts with people, the ways that people interact with each other, the ways that people move through space, and which is determined by the ability to get on an airplane or a bus, certainly, but also even just the social dynamics of who moves in what spaces, right? When we have lockdowns, who has to go to work? That's a spatial question the politics of who wears a mask and who doesn't, all of those things are really determining the course of the pandemic. What can complexity really contribute to this understanding? I think the ways that human behavior and our societal structure feed back to influence really the evolutionary trajectory of the virus. I think that's a truly fascinating question. We're seeing viral evolution that at least appears to be really unusual, right? We haven't been able to watch the evolution real time of other viruses, but how much of those evolutionary dynamics? actually driven by our human social structure and where the virus is able to spread, how quickly it's able to spread, get from one place to another. All of those questions, I think, are the sorts of emergent questions, you know, complexity science can really bring a new and important perspective to the table.
0: Melanie Moses, thank you very much for being a guest on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.